I actually think for all the very thoughtful conversation we just had, I can feel it in my body right now. This piece of content may be the piece that brings the most value. I am blown away by how many employees have made judgments on their organizations without trying to address it. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. A warm welcome to Gary Vaynerchuk. How are you? Fine. I'm Thanks so happy to me. have you. Thank you. Because you were by far the most publicly well-known guest in our pod so far. And hopefully this is the start of our global reach since we are on a global mission. And thank you, you so much for taking the time to talk to our audience. Um, what interests you about Sweden and business here? In a lot of ways, I believe Sweden is a preview to America in 50 to 75 years. I guess ultimately I admire the balance um, of, of the business, culture, human uh, infrastructure. And so, yeah, I, I just, I've always felt, not, you know, it's funny, I like to keep things basic. I've always felt good when I was here. Mm. What excites you when you look at um, the workplace and the business? Because you, you do have a little bit of an idea of how things work here. In the bigger businesses, call it the hundred biggest businesses in the re, in in this in the country, uh, it doesn't look so 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 different than other parts of the world. Um, I think as you go down the scale, uh, I do think that there's. Um, uh, I think on the coasts of America, on the entrepreneurial level, there is a little bit um, uh, of a potential for burnout or too much overworking or working for the sake of working that I think is a little more balanced here from the startups that I've interacted with. Um, and so much of the same in the top 100 companies compared to the com- the world, which is much more to do on culture and people and marketing um, and on the entrepreneurial front, a little bit more balanced than I see in other places. Well, if you were recruited as a CEO of one of the big Swedish, say, media companies, because we have a few, what would people experience that was different in your leadership, do you think, compared to a Swedish? Because Swedish managers are not uh, well-known to be hard and firm. and yeah. They're like they're more people-oriented. Yeah, you know, I actually... I think that that's an interesting thing. So I'm gonna, you're, you're doing something interesting here, which is you're using um, the data that you have in the macro. So I think one thing that you'll find fascinating as somebody who knows a little bit about my personality online, it was funny, I was smiling a little towards David. I would argue that I am the softest manager at my company and on the soft, I would argue that I am softer than 95% of the managers in Sweden. Even though on the internet, I'm a very outward, aggressive, American for an American personality because that's me as a communicator in content on the internet. The way I manage my people is very, very, very different. I would argue that the 43-year-old version of me as an executive has had to work over the last decade on radical candor. And so, you know, but on the flip side, um, what I would tell you is, I think I create, at my best, and I'd like to think I'm heading to my best, I create 
very safe environments, if you can get your employees to feel safe, they can be their best. Mm. However, I do think that some of the advanced laws in trying to create safety and balance also creates entitlement mm. and softness. Can you describe what a soft leader is? You use the word soft, I use the word soft too. Yeah, yeah I, I was following your mm. lead, but I think what we're saying, and I'm sure everybody who's listening, and by the way, I'm honored to be the first English guest. Um, I care about people's emotions and happiness and, and overall livelihood, not what they produce for me in the short term as an employee of my company. I don't know what else to say. I care more about, I look at our voluntary retention numbers 10 times more than I look at our profit margin. And I'm, you- I'm an HR driven CEO, not a CFO driven CEO. Here's why, I want to create clarity for everybody who's listening. Cause I'm playing forever. I own my businesses. I'm, so for me, I can do things that lead to retention and a real relationship because I'm not held accountable to Wall Street or a public market or a board or I'm so money hungry that I want a yacht and I believe most are. Mm. Do you, because you do have a lot of people um, interacting with you, can you talk a little bit about how you scale that personal connection, your ability to see the per- you say you, the person that you work with, the person behind the employee. How can you scale that when you have thousands of people around you? So we have a thousand in our ecosystem at VaynerX, all the companies I have under VaynerMedia. Uh, I do micro macro. Micro. I have a very aggressive open door policy. I meet, Meaning? Meaning any single employee that works for me that requests a meeting gets a meeting. Uh, I, sometimes when they don't take me up on that because they're scared or they don't want to bother me, I'm aggressive in creating meetings with people to check in. So I love people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's why I did well on social because that was a scaled version of it and it's why I do well right now with the mm-hmm. five of us. And so I'm very aggressive with one-on-one meetings, very, and that's micro. And then macro, I follow a stunning amount of my employees on social media. I read the Slack channels to watch what they're talking about. Slack is a, a like a for everybody who's listening. A threaded um, intranet, a very unlo- very much the opposite of email. <laughs> yeah, I mean, though I actually think it's just like email in the end. Um, to your point, it was built to be a better version of email. And Gchat, the problem is no tool, even a good one like Slack, can stop humans from being wildly inefficient. Mm. Um, so what you're saying is. It, you know things about them and that's what you build relationships on. I care mm. and have the intent and believe in the value of knowing them as human beings to do what I think is my requirement, which is to put them in the best position to succeed. You know, something I said yesterday to the London office was everything at VaynerMedia is my fault. There's a thousand things wrong right now. There's eight to 80 people that are responsible for that, but at the end of the day, I hired and empowered those eight to 80. If you are lucky enough to have control and you're listening right now, and if you're listening to this, you care about the things that we care about, please look yourself in the mirror and realize you're the one that has the ability to make the change that you ideologically believe in. What do you mean it's your fault? 
I, that's what I mean. I mean, if if our if we if the snacks in the kitchen stink, if we lost a client, if the micro production team in the LA office is not working well, in the end, every single thing in the company is my fault because I have the power to hire and fire every human that is actually creating that truth. Somebody else would say you're micromanaging. Yeah, I think I think I could be micromanaging in the philosophy, but you know, I think if you speak to anybody who's been a direct report of mine over the last decade, the biggest argument and issue they have is I'm not involved enough. I am in the bat phone business. What that means, since I'm using a, a Batman reference and I'm not sure how big Batman is in Sweden or now that we're going global on the podcast, uh, I'm in the business of being uh, in responding to. So I have no interest in micromanaging until there's an issue at hand. Mm. Um, and so, yes, somebody could say that philosophically, but in actual practitionership or operational, the way this you know, energy that I'm speaking about manifests in reality is you're only putting your finger in the hole that is biggest in your boat at that moment, which means there's a lot of boat left for those people to run. So just to, to give us more an insight of, of you as a leader, when you have those one-on-one -on -one conversations, your door is open, someone's coming to talk about a, a challenge or an idea, um, if you could describe, how do you prefer to use that time? How do you empower people? What, what, how do you spend that time with them? And some of them are five minutes, just for clarity for everybody. Um, I don't have a preference, and I don't think it's my place to have a preference on how it's spent. I have a preference that it happens because it creates context of a relationship with me and an employee, which begins the process of creating a safe environment to allow us to have actual conversations. So by the nature of the framework, it's already happening. As far as how it's spent, you would be fascinated. People use it to vent, people use it to actually have change be made, people use it to tell me something they've always wanted to tell me. Um, I don't really have a preference. My preference is that when they leave and they go home and they tell their best friend or their spouse, and if they ask how to go with Gary today, I know you're meeting with him, my preference is that it's a positive reaction, that they don't feel that I, my number one, the only thing I don't want to happen is that they say, ah, he just does that to check the box. It was a waste of time. Because you as a person cannot scale infinitely, you have other managers. Of course. And I'm just thinking, how can you, can you talk about what, how you foster a, le a relationship that engages both um, uh, employees and customers because I see this being outside of the company walls you you this is the style your company has towards customers as well seeing them as people how yeah. do you foster that kind of leadership by holding people accountable that have clout in doing the same clout means influence yes. and uh, ability to, to ch change things. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, it is imperative that the 50 most senior people in my company have somewhere between an 80 to 99% of this in their soul as well. I can't ask them to be 100% of the same intent that I have as much as possible and then it is my job back 
to the earlier statement of everything's your fault, when you have control, it's my job to make the tough decision when somebody no longer is allowed to be in our company when they don't embody that mission. I have a question for you because I've been thinking about this, how one handles managers who are very engaged in their job but do, who do not manage to be ga- uh, engaging vis-a-vis their colleagues because that do happen that you have people who are like living for their work but they, they can't handle their colleagues. If it's detriment, if it's a neutral, I try to make them work out. If it's a detriment to the other employees, they can no longer be there. Mm-hmm. I-, I value how the other boys and girls feel about you over anything else, over the skill, over how much money you bring into the organization, over how great and passionate you are about your craft. If you are the most passionate about your craft, but the 23 people that are surrounding you are miserable because you're a curmudgeon or worse, not a nice person, it won't work out. If you're neutral, and there are those leaders. I have leaders in my organization who are great at their craft, who are indifferent and neutral as leaders. When things in the macro are good, it's no problem. It's when things are tough, where you need wartime generals, So for me right now, because things in the macro are so good, those executives can continue to navigate and you try to build moats around them, you try to build them up, you try to figure out if it's a personality trait or if it's something they've never been trained on. Um, And, um, but, but if it's detrimental to the way you framed up the question, there's, there's just, there's no person that is more valuable than the culture at hand. Um, we need more innovation. We need to um, speed up the rate of change in the world. Um, and I'm curious about um, your perspective on what's, what, what kind of leadership will, will foster a more rapid um, rate of change. Freedom. This is my actual issue with Europe, actually. That one of the reasons innovation is difficult is heavy handing restrictions. This is where an American business point of view of deregulation and openness I think goes too far because people are actually money greedy, but in real life, having more freedom to do things matters. How do you speed up things? Less rules. How do you speed up things? Less process. How do you speed up things? Less fear. You know, so, you know, (laughs) this is something that has been my calling card for 20 years and it is out of, it is out of complete and utter lack of fear, complete and utter disdain for process that is in the the mix for the sake of process. Obviously some process is needed. Um, And this is ultimately was the first reason I got into culture besides having good DNA about liking people. It was that I understood that if people were motivated and excited that great things would happen versus fearful and political. Um, The type of leader that will create this is one that really focuses on those three things that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And also you mentioned 
the ability to create a safe environment. It's so and I think that is so beautiful when you say that because it's not something we often talk about. We don't talk about safety because we think it hinders change. I, I'm putting out 40, 50, 60 pieces of meaningful content on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Da, da. Nonetheless, where am I going with this? Most of this is organized through one text thread with 30 people on it. I have 30 people now who are on my team that produce Gary V content, right? Strategy, media, creative. There was something that was posted, I mean, there, there's been multiple things posted recently because we have a lot of junior members that were onboarding to do things where the junior member, the most junior member, and Maha, I want to make sure you're paying attention to this because I don't know if this caught your radar because I know you're on the list too now. Gary's calling his assistant Maha. No, no my boss, Maha. Uh, uh, literally, this 30-person thread, and I saw one of the most junior people posted a podcast that hadn't been edited yet and had sensitive information and was comfortable enough to post in the entire thread, hey, G, my bad. Now, here's what's important, and I want everybody to listen very carefully. Most junior person, pretty big mistake, like in the scheme of like, in, I mean, not in real life, but in the business world, says it in front of everybody and says it to me. And it wasn't a fun thing to deal with. Couple things. One, that's creating a world where there isn't fear. It's a barometer of how safe the person is. Thank you, but, but I have goosebumps and I'll tell you why I have goosebumps. And this is <clears throat> very exciting for me to say in Sweden and in the Nordics and in Europe and in the world. There was also a 1% to 5% energy behind the text of a little bit of fear. Or, let me say it a different world because I don't actually think it was fear but I'm trying to make a point here. There was accountability. There, he, because it's the truth, knows that I might have texted him off chain and fired him and that I could do that. And that, you're the boss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and oh, by the way, because the laws don't require me to give him six months. I mean, this is important. Because, because You're emphasizing <clears throat> the difference between the US and, and, and Europe. And I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. Because I think Europe is so close and it's just a couple tweaks. I don't think the US has it right. I don't think Europe has it right. And by the way, this is my personal way that I want to run my world. I'm not saying I'm right. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to bring value here for people to make their own decisions. But it creates a nerve in your organization. And it's not, mm -hmm. a, it's a nerve based on, it's not that I'm a, I'm, I'm a softy, I established mm -hmm. early, I really am. Like if mm -hmm. my CFO was here, he's like, we don't fire fast enough, it creates entitlement. But the fact that it could happen creates accountability. It is not a nerve, it is, so it's safety with responsibility. And very clear rules of the game. Yeah, it's just like, it, it, it's, it's that the rules don't overly protect you from, from lack of execution or ability. So nonetheless, I appreciate you jumping on this because it is probably the thing I'm most, it's, let me phrase, it is one of the things I'm very proud of and one of the things that I wanna talk a lot more about over the next 30 years of my life, which is I create very, very safe environments which I now believe leads to incredibly good behavior for the people that play within that framework. And by the way, I actually believe that that has to do with a lot of the best, because we're using that theme here in this call, obviously, 
I think that has a lot to do with some of the best nations in the world too. You know, mm-hmm. you know, as an American citizen, I've traveled the world my whole life, sometimes in not the greatest places, and I've never been fearful because I know that those places know that they can't kidnap me. Mm. What has led you to this um, this view on, on, on culture and leadership, do you think? Because it's not a, a yeah. view that everybody holds who are on top, uh, at the top. Running my own businesses as if they were my children themselves, thus having to ask deeper questions than just financial success. Um, I, I'll just add one more thing, I know you wanna move on because I'm getting a little long-winded here, but I'm excited because I love this subject matter. When every entrepreneur who's listening right now knows one thing that I know, that your business is your second child, is your third child, is your fourth child, I have no idea how many children everyone has, that's the answer because I'm treating my business like a parent. Or your spouse. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, but even more like a parent, and I'll tell you why. With a spouse or a partner, that's a, a lateral relationship, whereas a child or a business, you're in charge of it. You're grooming it. You know, it's almost like your garden, right? Those tomatoes are gonna come out. That's you with, mm-hmm. with the macro. I can't control mother nature, just like I can't control the world but I can maximize my tomatoes this year if I do good behavior. And that's how I think about my businesses. Mm. Um, what are the weak sides of your leadership? T- I do not like negativity. And so in my early years, since I started running companies right from the beginning, my historic vulnerability that I continue to work on and is far great in a better place than it used to be, is in my unbelievable disdain for confrontation and negativity, I wasn't uh, candorous enough and would surprise people when I would fire them. And also created a level of entitlement which usually led to the firing because they weren't getting negative feedback, they were just getting positive reinforcement. And, and then suddenly something happened. And they became delusional. No, and unfortunately, it wasn't that suddenly something happened. For the last three years, they've always been bad at these three things. I just don't focus on negatives. I focus on positives. They don't hear anything about it. And then they get called into the meeting probably thinking they're about to get a raise because four weeks ago I gave them a high five about something they do do well. And then I'm like, hey Jan, hey Rick, you know, we're gonna have to talk about you not being here. And they would be flabbergasted and I would defend my actions to myself in my 20s and early 30s on they're delusional, how did they not know, couldn't they tell, but, but a lot of people don't deploy the self-awareness that I was gifted with, it's not, you know, uh, and, and more importantly, employees always have other side. like everybody, there's always two sides to a story, so over the last three or four years, and I'll tell you that my brother AJ, who was 22 years old when he became my partner at VaynerMedia 10 years ago, he, is far, you know, uh, he's a good balance. My dad is overcritical and only focused on the negative. So I think I naturally was over positive, but then being in the same company with him and a father-son, I almost had to be 100% positive to offset 100% negative, and that's the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, you were a little dishonest. You didn't want to really... I hate that it's, I'm smiling, because I hate that it's, yes, I was a little dishonest and, and a lot dishonest. I would not fully articulate my thoughts to my employees. The, I would try to 
grow so much that it could hide all their shortcomings, but then inevitably, as my companies grew, you know, it's one thing when you have a family liquor store business and you have 10 employees, you can manage all of them. When I started getting to 80 and 100 in that business, other people had to manage, and that's when my vulnerabilities exposed themselves because I didn't recognize what I was actually doing. Uh, And now at Vayner, with 1,000, it's become even bigger because even the quality, let's call it what it is, the executives at VaynerMedia are a different quality than a stock boy in a liquor store when they're 19 at a liquor store. So I've learned a lot. My, I, 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 uh, I've learned a lot. Uh, my brother started that process because I admired his level of candor even as a kid because it's a natural skill for him. And then, and then five or four years ago, Vayner was getting big. We were at four or 500 people. I was carrying so much of the financial and emotional burden, back to micromanaging, in the macro. Uh, that it, it, I could see, because I'm a practical operator, that there was a financial vulnerability that if I wasn't gonna get more out of the top 50 people, that all trickled. I also didn't like the way our company was being structured towards going towards the world I saw, which is a, a bigger impact around the volume of creative needed to be put out. So we, for the first time, after going from 30 to 400 people in three years, we did a 35 person layoff. The company lost its mind. The overreaction, the stuff that I, and if you've been listening carefully, the stuff that I like to take subtle digs about, I so admire Europe, but there's subtle things I dig about. Ironically, I was being hypocritical. I was doing the same thing in my four walls. Probably why I've always loved these places, because I'm probably, as as a human, I'm probably way more Sweden than I am Soviet Russia or even America. So. It's interesting, that was a really important moment in my career, because a couple things. One, I'm gonna talk tomorrow about entitlement, and I'm gonna put pressure on the parents in the room saying, look, if you've been paying for everything for your kid, and then at 22 you tell them you're cut off, they're not prepared. And then they're gonna be mad at you. Mm -hmm. And we look, as outsiders, being mad at the kid, you entitled brat, you you think you're entitled to $2,000 a month allowance from your parents? But, but you've trained them to not be capable. That's what I did at Vayner and it was a painful year mm. on our culture and it's been a big, big uh, teaching moment for me. Are you more authentic now? Because you say 100%. you, because it surprised me when you say, um, I use the word dishonest, which was not fair. We should have used the, the word uh, non-authentic because you say that you love meeting people. You say you I like do. to build relationships. I do. And I think authenticity is kind of the, the fuel for that process. It's so you're taking away um, an ingredient in that relationship. It was. By not being completely honest. 100%. Now, what you can imagine though, is the recipient of that lack of authenticity enjoyed the shit out of it. Because it's just positive reinforcement instead of critical feedback. So both parties were quite happy for the majority of that relationship. It was only when I had to deal with the realities of the merit of running an organization that has consequences that I even had to address it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not my favorite part. As you can imagine, one of the reasons I have such a big audience in the world is I can be 100% authentic with them because I can't analyze the truth after I engage with them because they move on to their lives and I'm not sitting there living. Unlike VaynerMedia, where after I tell Carol that she's the sweetest sweetheart of all time, that her strategy work is incredible, 
right? That she's a sunshine in the office, that she's always responsible and hardworking, and she leaves. Meanwhile, I know that clients aren't happy with her or she's incapable of upselling a client which is becoming detrimental to the business. Your you know, feedback wasn't very helpful then. You're right. Mm-hmm. And, and so what's really fun about being a human being, especially one that's probably gifted with a lot of things that do make them successful, is going through the course of your career and deploying humility to understanding your own shortcomings, no matter how sweet they taste for both parties, and then adjusting. And I often have said that the 43-year-old version of me, even though the 25-year-old version of me thought he was gonna be great and thought he was naturally talented, the experience matters and it's why I value experience. It's great getting older. (laughs) It's great getting older and so I'm proud of A, getting to a place in my life where I could recognize it and address it. And by the way, I'm still not all the way there. If, you know, if we're calling on a scale of one to 10, I used to be a one or two on this. I'm probably a five to 7.5 on this right now, but I'm on my way to it being an eight or nine. I'll never be a 10, it's not naturally in me. Not only am I proud that I've been able to move from zero and one to five to seven, I'm proud that I'm in a place where I can articulate it for 10 minutes on a podcast, knowing that it can help somebody who naturally is in a juxtaposition similar to where I was, you know. I am in the ambulance, firefighting, emergency doctor, bat phone business. I am only built to act in helping for you to succeed within this framework. It's, it's, it's kind of massive that somebody says that to you. I would be almost moved if my manager said that to me. <laughs> and I believe when you look at our organization, the people that have been with me for seven, eight years, the people that are winning the most really see it. And the people that don't hear it and think it's a, think it, they deploy cynicism that I just wanna hear myself speak and it's an ideology and that I won't actually do it. Because what's amazing about employees is how many, and this, by the way, I'm gonna set this up on the podcast. I'm actually very excited to say this. I actually think for all the very thoughtful conversation we just had, I can feel it in my body right now. This piece of content may be the piece that brings the most value. I am blown away by how many employees have made judgments on their organizations without trying to address it. The amount of my employees that come into my office on year three call my bluff finally to address something. I address it in 48 hours, within a month, whatever the issue is. They come back and say, I can't believe you did it. And then give me 31 other things that happened in the first 36 months of their tenure. But they decided to be cynical. They vet with their friends at a beer. They talk about it in the girl's bathroom. They tell their mother, but they never told me or the organization. It is the great shortcoming of employees in our world today. My friends, call the company's bluff. Call the bluff. I mean, if you haven't gone to HR or to the CEO or however your world is structured, well then you have no legs to stand on that the company stinks. If you have and they haven't delivered, vent away, but until you call the bluff, then you're just complaining because you like to complain. Mm. Or be the change be the change you want to see. Be the change maker yourself. Those, 
and and hold yourself accountable for that change. Let's talk about that because I understand why you're saying that. You'll appreciate where I'm going with this. I have a lot of empathy for that person on the other line right now, listening, because there's only so much you can do. Like, like that's just the truth. Um, and people always ask me, Gary, I wanna impact people the way you do or change the world, these very heady things. I'm like, well, just do it for one person. It's action. Everybody, you know, people love to ideate or pontificate, uh, but they don't do. And, and so for me, this is a game about doing. So yes, be that change, but be that change as somebody who does it within what they can control. Mm. You know, you knocking on the door of the CEO and demanding uh, X, Y, Z, is very cute, but you're not sitting with all the context. Uh, and so, uh, yeah. Um, because this is the engagement podcast, um, can you um, try and narrow down what, on, what is the number one driver of engagement in the workplace? The ability to listen. The number one driver of engagement is the macro and then the individual employees that make up the company's ability to actually listen. I, um, man, I, gosh, I, I really. So cultivating our ability to listen as end. employees, um, as managers, is, is, a, is a very important focus going forward for you and your, your organization. It's the only thing I think mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. If you think about the, just to create some uh, levels of clarity here for everybody, the, the, the ability to engage and be engaged and things of that nature completely start with the seed of being heard. You know, somebody being heard is, is completely different than somebody who feels they're not heard. That's if, also what research shows. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Good. That makes me feel good. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. To, <clears throat> to be seen and to have the, um, the opportunity or possibility to influence um, the your situation um, so that you're not trapped. Nothing makes me more excited than when a junior employee comes, gives a recommendation, and then seven months later it actually becomes true and they reach out to me and they never think it was them. Hey Gary, Sarah Thompson here. You know, we met seven months ago. You know, just saw the announcement or just saw this or this just happened. You know, I'm sure it wasn't me and you probably don't remember that I asked you but I'm so glad it's happening. And then me on a flight at 1.30 in the morning, dear Sarah, uh, it happened because you walked into my office, where I heard you, I thought you might be right, I investigated, we did it, da 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 da, -da. It's one of my favorite parts of my job. Oh. Um, in your view, how aware of are the average business leaders of the correlation between employee engagement and profitability? Non-existent because CFOs are too literal, an Excel sheet, and 90%, if not 99%, are not deploying emotional intelligence above their financial intelligence, and they are spreadsheet basics. Mm -hmm. I mean. But you're an expert in communication. You know how to change and to capture sort of people's minds and hearts. What is your advice to Hey, Angus Shemang, who's, hey, engagement, who's really trying to put this um, question on the agenda of the executive um, teams of large organizations, that there is a positive correlation between high employee engagement, innovation, profitability, and also um, just 
health numbers, number of days sick, for etc. So the way, I, in the in the macro of all this, it's basically what I'm doing for a living. The reason I'm putting out so much content as a human and collecting so much popularity is to deploy it against better behavior, both professionally and personally. In the micro of your question, anybody who's listening right now, you will be 100% historically correct if you beat this drum. You will be 100% historically correct that employee engagement leads to financial rewards. I have no idea where you, when you hear me say that on how convinced you are right now. Are you a 90% at 50%? My one take on it is you will be 100% historically correct no different than the people I'm sure in the 1950s and 60s who were yelling that cigarettes were bad for you when that was still being debated um, became historically correct. I have no idea if the 89 year old who was doing that feels amazing about this, indifferent, bad, I, I don't know. Uh, but that would be my plea, which is if you're like me, wired like me, the, the ambition to be correct and the enjoyment of bringing positivity and practicality to our society and then being revered and admired for that truth when it plays out. If you're lucky enough to have that wiring, please see it through and keep beating this drum because it is you that ultimately makes those changes. Um, in your view, who is responsible for your engagement at work? Is it you as Both. the employee or your boss? 50-50. You, you're also a firm believer that anybody could build their own unique business. And I've watched a lot of your podcasts and your number one piece of advice for succeeding is work hard. How do you manage that with sustained engagement over time in a healthy way? Because my number one statement is actually be happy. I just need to, no different than when I realized five years ago that I needed to do a better job in radical candor, I've realized over the last 10 years, you saying earlier that you weren't being, there was a level of dishonesty made my stomach go down, right? Mm -hmm. and, 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 but I'm about to go to the point. You right now saying your number one piece of advice is work hard made my stomach go down further. Nope, now listen, let me clarify this. I believe in work ethic like nobody's business. I believe that work ethic is an enormous variable of success. You just, I, mm -hmm. And controllable, which is powerful. However, my, you know, through the years, what I've not done a, as good of a job, though I've sprinkled it, though I've done unique pieces of content about it, though my second book was called The Thank You Economy, though in my first book, Crush It, I speak about this, the reason this is a very easy answer for me is the way you sustain it is loving it. Mm. It doesn't become being a workaholic when you're doing your hobby. The reason I started telling people that any, the reason I, you know, when people hear anybody can do it, they're like, ah, Gary, this is the secret. It's, I'm like, no, no, take a step back. We now live in an internet world where the cost of entry is zero. And every one of us who's listening right now has a passion, whether that's fishing, fashion, hair coloring, drinking wine, sport. I believe that anybody can start the process of creating content 
around something they're passionate about, which will always do better than something you're not passionate about, and that over time, that may lead to something that can pay you 30, 40, 80,000 euros or dollars a year, or eventually millions if you're ultimately talented. Are you willing to live a humble life that makes 47,000 a year only speaking about blueberry jam, but you're happy is my pressure and question. And so- It's a great question. To me, it's something that I'm pushing more clarity around, which is I want you to be happy. And accountable. Of course, well, the beauty of entrepreneurship is without, there is, it's inherently accountability, otherwise it fails. I do want people to be happy and I actually think accountability leads to happiness. When you think the government's in charge, the, the media's in charge, Facebook's in charge, this boss is in charge, when you believe somebody else is in charge of your life, you immediately start the process of unhappiness. Accountability is the framework of happiness. It doesn't mean bad things aren't happening. It's not delusion to the macro injustices of the world. It's called accountability. Can you, we finish off um, by talking a little bit about skills and abilities that are going to be increasingly important. Um, Emotional intelligence. mm, Well, what else would you like to equip your daughter with in order to Emotional intelligence, self-awareness, Emotional intelligence, lack of delusion, all this, I'm, you know, what a great way to wrap this up. I'm, I, I'm struggling not to smile very heavily. You can smile. The <laughs> only reason this all matters is everything else gets commoditized with technology and what we will be left with is emotional intelligence and communication. So what do I want my daughter to be equipped with? Self-esteem that doesn't lead to a delusion, a self-awareness radar that allows her to know what actually makes her happy, and for her to have incredible work ethic out of the reality that she found something she likes so much that she doesn't even realize she's working that much. That old adage of find something you love, you never work a day of your life, is remarkably on point. And most people think it's baloney, except for that small percentage that actually have found what they're best at and they love the most. And because we might, in Europe at least, get something what we call basic income in a few years, um, because technology will do some parts of the jobs that we're doing, you really need to find what you love, because otherwise, yeah, what and, are you gonna do and all honestly, day? Honestly, I think basic income, and I don't know the details on this, but if you're alluding to being subsidized because technology is taking your job, um, this is where I do think in Europe, and this is a US conversation as well, that is where I do get concerned. I'll tell you why. Farming was what everybody did. 250 years ago, 100 years ago, we farmed. Everybody. And then machines came along, and we didn't need you to pick the corn. The machine picked the corn. We didn't, in 1930, 40, 50, 60, say, oh, we're so devastated for all the farmers, the farmers found different jobs. If we are now saying, as a society of 7.7 billion, hey, we're gonna subsidize a portion of this transition, 
you're starting to already create that level of entitlement and lack of accountability. I hear this all the time. Gary, what are we gonna do about all the drivers? Driving trucks and cars in the US is one of the we biggest- We self-driving not, cars and trucks. Right. Mm. I go, if you're a driver in the world right now, for the last 36 months, the amount of coverage that we've had that driving's gonna be obsolete. If you're a 27-year-old truck driver right now, and you aren't planning on what you're gonna do about autonomous cars, we have to ask ourselves, where do we hold people accountable for their actions to adjust to the realities of the world? And not that I have the right answer because my answer earlier was employee, employee, 50-50, and maybe what Sweden or Europe is doing is actually right. Maybe there does need to be some small version of subsidies but we need to be very thoughtful that we don't put human beings in a level of entitlement because as soon as that happens, we get into a world of non-action and that becomes a very difficult place to be. Mm -hmm. Finally, you know we're on a mission to raise the level of engagement in organizations starting in Sweden um, and our goal is to create a global movement. If you were the minister of engagement in, in the government, what would you focus on so more people can go to work because they want to and not because they're forced to? I would focus on a heavy investment in modern communication tactics across 10 to 15 meaningful platforms like YouTube, podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, on and on, and I would pump information, literal and gray, around this subject matter. Comms is how you change things. Not laws, not mandates, communication to change the heart and minds of everyone. So I would pour almost all of my money into modern communication tactics to bring awareness around this issue itself. Thank you so much, Gary, Thank you. for joining Engagement's Podden. Hey guys, I hope you really enjoyed this episode of the Gary V Experience. Now go out and share this, pass it on, let me know what you thought.